Let's go to Luke chapter 19. We ended last week by looking at the parable of the pound. God giving this very clear picture and understanding that what he's blessed us with, the gift of the pound, the, the Holy Spirit, should yield a great return, should yield a great response. And for any of us who have accepted our life that says, you know, well, God won't do anything great in me, that God won't transform anyone through me, we have poorly calculated what God expects to do and what he wants to do. So we'll begin in verse 29. It says, And it came to pass, when he came nigh to Beth and Bethany, at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go you into the village over against you, in the which at your entering you shall find a colt tied, whereon yet never man set. Loose him and bring him. If any man ask you, why do you loose him? Thus shall you say unto him, because the Lord has need of it. I want to stop right there because this kind of makes a point in and of itself within that scripture. And the point very simply is this. There are many things that God instructs us if we're paying attention. These two disciples heard Jesus' voice as he spoke. They received an instruction that had to bother them a little bit as they walked away. As they walked away from Jesus, they weren't confused by the instruction. There had to be a little bit of a concern about what's going to happen when I get there. Can I actually be obedient because I don't know what I'm going to encounter? One of the great things that we have to accept when God gives this kind of instruction, when God tells us, gives us a clear picture and a clear path in front of us, that we have to know and trust that God has a friend on the other end who has already been spoken to and understands by faith why I'm coming. We are not walking into a void. We're not walking into silence. We're walking into the provision. We're walking into the plan that God has already established. We're hesitant to go when God says, if you'll go in obedience, what you're going to find is I've also got another friend on the other end who is ready and willing and has heard me as well. When I went to this guy in Austin that, you know, when we had received this instruction to build this orphanage in Kenya, and I sat down in his office and I said, this is my understanding, that if I heard this correctly, if I understood what God was saying to me, I have great confidence that somewhere within the last few weeks or last few months, God has delivered the same message to you. And I use this illustration because God would not have sent me if I was walking into resistance, if I was walking into a void, God doesn't work that way. If he asked me to go, he's also prepared on the other end, the provision, because this is how we meet God's friends. This is how we understand that God works. So here's Jesus saying, I want you to go, and you're going to go into this village, and you're going to find there a colt that is tied. What would we be doing if this was us, two disciples walking in, and beginning to untie a colt that we don't own. Your head will be on a swivel. It's like, okay, I'll watch you, you untie. And then we'll depart as quickly as possible. But this great assessment of God, instruction of Jesus says, and if anybody says anything, this is what I want you to say. So what did Jesus do? They went equipped. They went ready. Everything on their heart had been set. It was, it was very clear. So verse 32 and they that were sent went their way and found even as he said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto them, Why loose you the colt? And they said, The Lord hath need of him. 
That was the end of the conversation. Again, why? Because two men of faith, under the instruction of God, had an encounter with a man who had a colt and a donkey and had already heard from God as well. And the provision of God was made. And they brought him to Jesus and they cast their garments upon the colt and they set Jesus thereon. This seemed like a very simple picture. But this was the moment that if you were to see it in any other setting, would be a king being set on a horse. This would have been with great pomp. This would have been with great precision, great circumstance. This would have been, have been a dynamic moment. Jesus is entering into Jerusalem onto the stage in which the, some of the greatest things that would ever affect mankind are going to unfold. Every one of these things was carefully designed and carefully prepared. They laid their garments, their robes across him, and they set Jesus. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. Now, I want to tell you, this was no small deal. How many suits of clothes did they have? One. This was no small picture. They were laying their garments down, again, watching this whole thing unfold. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. If I had a superpower, the number one thing I would want is to be able to time travel. I would love to stand in this moment because it stands in contrast to every other moment of Jesus' life up to this point. This one stood in sharp contrast. Because up to this point, Jesus says, don't tell anybody. This is up to the point where Jesus is saying, don't call me, don't announce me, don't declare me. Everything that Jesus had done, trying to limit the picture, trying to keep in perspective what was actually going on. In this moment, the disciples began to cry out. Everybody that was along the way began to shout, and they were, they were shouting, Hosanna. They were, they were shouting to the king, the celebration the roar had, had from the crowd had begun for everybody that was along the way as they were laying their clothes down, saying, Blessed be the king that comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if they should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. And Jesus is saying, you try to stop them because this is the moment. We studied a few weeks ago in Sunday school, and I've taught this before. At the beginning of Daniel chapter 9, Daniel says, At the time of the evening oblation, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, as he began to pray, God caused an angel, Gabriel, to fly swiftly. So the, at the length of that prayer, which is about 20 verses, as Daniel prays, Gabriel is flying. So that at the end of the prayer... Gabriel now stands before Daniel and says, God has heard your cry. He's come to give you an answer to your question. And he begins to tell him. He said, six things have got to occur in the nation of Israel. And they're going to occur in 77, 490 years. It's called the 70 weeks of Daniel, the Shabuah. 70 times 7, 490 years that God's going to deal with Jerusalem and Israel. And he says from point A, and he gives a specific year, 442 BCE, to the coming of Messiah the Prince will be 483 years. 
And I, I want to assure you, understanding prophetic years, you can count from that date. Because in the, in the second chapter of the book of Nehemiah, it gives the day of the month and it gives the year in which this decree went out. So from the decree to the coming of Messiah the Prince would be 483 years. And Jesus is saying the fulfillment of those 483 years has come on this day. And if you were to try to stop what God has prophesied, if you're trying to stop what God has set in motion, these rocks will begin to cry out. If these people don't, the rocks will. Because 483 years ago, on this particular date, when Gabriel stood before Daniel, he said, on this day, I would come. This is the culmination of a prophetic reality out of those 490 years of Daniel chapter 9. In, in year 483, Messiah the Prince would come, and here he is announcing himself for who he truly is. Verse 41, and when he was come near, he beheld the city, and he wept over it. Why did Jesus ride on the back of this donkey? What was the point here? Why didn't he, if he wanted to be recognized as king, why didn't he ride it on the back of a horse, which would have announced him to be who he truly was? The king would ride a horse, a physician and a priest would ride the donkey. So what was he announcing? I didn't come to do what you expected. I didn't come to be the king that you thought I would be. I'm not the king that's going to come in on the back of the horse. My kingdom is going to be built on something other than what you have typically known. So he came in announcing that he was the king of peace, that he was the king who would start something so radically different that they had never seen before. So now he's riding into Jerusalem and he's, and he's weeping over it. He's on this donkey. He's begin weeping. Why would he weep? Because 483 years earlier, God had sent a message to his people so that they could be ready for the day when he was going to come. I mean, you could have counted it. Anybody who had access, and they did have access to the book of Daniel within the Old Testament scripture, they had it. This wasn't something foreign to them. They could have easily understood that on this day in year 32 BCE that Jesus was going to ride into the Jerusalem on the back of this donkey. They could have counted and have seen it coming. And he's weeping over them. And listen to what he says. If you had known even now at least this, thy day, this day that was set up for you, the things which belong unto your peace, but now they are hid from your eyes. For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemy shall cast a trench about you and compass you around and keep you in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of your visitation. Boy, I want to tell you, there are no harder words. Here's a man, Jesus, riding on the back of the donkey, coming into Jerusalem, being hailed as king, sent by God, his disciples recognizing it and cheering him to the point where he would say if they were to stop, the rocks would cry out. And as he approaches Jerusalem, the weeping starts. And this is not tears trickling. If you look up the word, he was wailing. He was that upset and announcing to them, you've missed the day I planned for you. What's the significance of that? I happen to believe, and you can agree or disagree, I believe that every day of our life has got a very specific plan of God attached to it. I believe God has written a story about us, a predestined story, that if we're willing to join it, every day has something built within it 
that is 100% God. He's saying, you missed an appointment. I made the appointment with you 483 years ago, and you had the card in your hand, gave you a phone call on the day before, and you still missed your appointment. And here's what's going to happen because you didn't pay attention. Now think about this. Think about the reality of what this means to us. God has appointed a day when he's coming back. Now we can live in anticipation of it, or we can, we can choose every day to ignore it. Why would he tell us he's going to come back someday in our future? Because he doesn't want to be weeping over us because we missed the day of, of our visitation. Because here's what he says is going to happen, and it did. In 66 AD, Titus, a Roman general, surrounded Jerusalem, set up a blockade around us. When you read the history of what happened in this moment, when Titus made a trip around Jerusalem and could see inside Jerusalem and saw the death, saw the children, the women, and the men starved to death. It's recorded, whole families dying on the same day because of this blockade that had been put around Jerusalem. History, not the Bible, history records that Titus turned to God and says, you cannot hold this against me because he had never seen such devastation. He had never seen anything so awful. And he turned to God and says, you can't hold me responsible for this. Unbelievably awful. Why? Jesus said it. Because you missed the day of your visitation. We have done some strange things to God. We've made him mean. We've made him judgmental. We've made him harsh. We've made him lazy. We've made him uncaring. We've done a lot of things to him. We've drawn a lot of conclusions and turn God into many, many different versions other than who he truly is. Why would he give us so much prophecy? Why would he want us to know so carefully, so specifically, that there is a day coming when I'm going to stand in front of him? Why would he want me to know that? Little kids, and you tell them, if you don't obey me, there's a moment of consequence coming. Why do we warn them? Because we love them. We warn them because we want them to understand that there is a consequence for certain things within our life And we want to touch them, we want to love them, we want to assure them. So why would God go to such length to tell us about the day when we're going to stand in front of him? Because he wants us, out of love for us, to be ready for that day so that none of us stand there. And we can read this in Colossians chapter 1 when Paul's saying, why would God tell us about Christ in me, the hope of glory, so that we can present all men perfect? So that on that day, because we know the truth, we can stand before him having known the truth, And be accountable to him and not stand there in fear, not stand there in great trepidation, but stand there knowing that he's told us that that day's coming. What would happen to us? What would we call someone who had a warning about a day yet to come and ignored it? What would we call that person? The Bible says this word from time to time. What would we call that person? A fool. So strange that the church, not the we don't expect the world, the church has turned up its nose at that truth. That someday that day is coming for all of us. And that reality having no effect on me whatsoever. Being able to see up there, it's almost as ridiculous as looking down the highway and seeing this massive wreck in front of us. I'm driving, I can see it up there a half a mile. What would immediately happen when I saw that up there in front of me? I would slow down. It would immediately cause me to do something different because I could see what was in front of me. My actions, my behavior, my attitude, everything would change in that moment because... I could see what was up there. By the nature of that, it would immediately make me change what's doing, what's happening right now. Or I'd be a fool. Because the fool would be the one who could see it and just kept driving straight into it. Saying, yeah, I saw it, but I didn't think it was going to affect me. I didn't think I was going to be involved. 
And God's given us a very clear picture of up there someday, there, we're going to stand at the judgment seat. I'm saying, I'm showing you that so that because of that truth, there's a reality about you right now. There's certain things that would definitely be different right now. He goes on in verse 45. He says, and he went into the temple and he began to cast them out. So therein and them that bought. I want to take up that, that part of the end of, of Luke 19 next week, talking about this last time that he clears the temple. This picture unfolding in front of us, for me, is one of the most exciting passages in the Bible because it's what we wanted Jesus to do all the time. We wanted Jesus at some of those moments when he heals someone, when, you know, those moments when the disciples are, are doing something or when the Pharisees are saying, you know, we, we want him to stand up in some of those moments and, you know, because we're cheering for him, we want him to stand up so that we can acknowledge him. It was just never there until this moment. So different. But this is the moment when those disciples, this is the moment when his followers, this is the moment when we can stand and just cheer for him, clap for him and say, Jesus, how mighty those things that you've done, how amazing what we've seen you do. And for the first time, for it to just come out of them so freely and openly in praise and adoration. And I guarantee when you read this and look at it from Psalm, you realize they're saying the most dynamic things they can say. I mean, there is an overwhelming excitement about them because Jesus has come. The Messiah, promised 483 years earlier, was now on the road heading into Jerusalem. He knew what was facing him. He, he wasn't naive. He didn't go in foolishly. But there was something far greater in him to be obedient, knowing what was facing him. He knew what it was about. He knew what he was about to accomplish. It's a great moment, great, great portion of Scripture that tells us a whole lot about how he sees us when he gave us such specific warnings. And I'll just close with this. If you ever have an opportunity, you know, make yourself a note, go to the Internet, Google, and put in Peter Stoner. It'll bring up an article about Peter Stoner, who was a mathematician in college, and one of the, the things that he was doing, he wasn't a believer. He was looking at the probability of what it would take for prophecies of the Old Testament to come true in the New Testament. So he began by taking, I think, seven prophecies and saying, what's the, the math probability that one man could fulfill all seven of those? The math was so astronomical, he, they give this example. If you took silver dollars and put an X on one, and then you filled up the state of Texas, covered it with silver dollars three feet high. Then you could you walk out there and pick it out of that group the first time. That's the probability of, of, of like seven of those things coming true in one person. It gets like 10 to the 17th power, something like that. He goes up to like 40 or 43 Old Testament prophecies, and there's over 300 of them. But like, I think he took like 43 or 44 or 45 and says, what's the likelihood that one man could fulfill all of those? It was like the illustration, you can read it for yourself, was the smallest particle you could think of where there would actually be like, uh, I think he said like 10 of them on the head of a stick pin. And you could put an X on one of those tiny, tiny things, covered the state of Texas with them three feet deep, going out and being able to pick it up the first time. That one speck that had the mark on it, that's the probability that 40-something uh, that of those prophecies could come true in one man. And we have over 300 of them pointing to, to New Testament prophecies in, in the coming of Jesus and his death and his burial and his resurrection. How much proof do we need? How obvious does God need to make it? 
Well, he's done a very good job of telling us, I'm coming again. And when I come, there's a day of reckoning, there's a day of accounting, because I'm going to see what you've done with the pound that I gave you, the talents that I gave you. I want to see what you've done with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit that I equipped you with. What's in your account based on what you've done? Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you tonight for this portion of Scripture and the beauty of it. Again, Lord, our minds, our hearts have such a hard time getting around how magnificent this moment was. This moment that was so out of character for you, for you to have refused any praise, any acknowledgement up to this point, and then to openly receive all the praise, all the glory and the adoration that these people could offer, how it stands out in our hearts. But Lord, even this moment won't compare to when you do ride out of heaven on the back of the horse, not just proclaiming peace, not being the great physician, but the next time on the back of the horse, King of kings and Lord of lords. There will be no mistaking it. So Lord, we, we see a glimpse of what will happen. But we know, Lord, that there's a day coming. That day, Revelation 19, King of kings, Lord of lords. There'll never be a day like it. I pray, Lord, that we would live every day in anticipation of your return so that you would find us ready and never have to weep a day that we didn't understand, that we didn't believe, by faith we didn't know that you were coming again. Thank you for this truth. Thank you for this picture in Jesus' name. Amen.